Hey guys, you're listening to episode 64 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Jeff Rutt, CEO of Keystone Custom Homes and co-host of the Generous Business Owner Podcast and founder of Hope International. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking with Jeff Rutt. Jeff is the founder and CEO of Keystone Custom Homes, a very successful home building business based in Pennsylvania. Not long ago, God led Jeff to give away 89% of the ownership of his business, and he talks through the process with us on the show today. Jeff also founded Hope International a Christian microfinance organization that's made over $1.4 billion in small loans all around the world since 1997. You may have also heard Jeff on the Generous Business Owner podcast, which he co-hosts with Alan Barnhart and Jeff Thomas. Before we get started, I just wanted to ask one big favor of you guys. If you've been listening to this show and want to support what we're doing, one very easy and completely free way to do that is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just write whatever you like about the show, and you'll help others find us. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. With that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with Jeff Rutt. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Can you just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your spiritual background to kick us off? Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, 10 years old, Learned to work really hard and get up at 4 a.m., milk the cows, learned a lot about discipline and just how life worked on the farm, which I appreciated. Years later, I didn't really appreciate it that much then, but it was a (laughs) great background. And the phrase and the title of a book actually called Raising Grateful Kids in an Entitled World comes to mind because we were the opposite of that. Had a great upbringing, a little bit of a dysfunctional family. My parents were divorced when I was 13. My mom picked up my siblings at school when I was 13 and left me a note that said, here's my number, call me if you want to join. I ended up staying with my dad on the dairy farm. Basically learned a lot about business, farming, got very involved in our youth group at our church. Our pastor took me under his wing, and which I really appreciated. Got involved in some leadership and was fascinated with missions at an early age. I was actually chairman of our, what we called the Witness Commission, which was focused on ministry around the world at a very young age. So at at 18, I was standing up kind of defending the missions budget compared to the stewardship budget was, I distinctly remember there was an issue on the board agenda to discuss paving the parking lot at that time, our church had a stone parking lot, which at this point, I'm a home builder. You know, everything gets paved. You know, there's no stone <laughs> anywhere. But I was lobbying hard against the expense of paving the parking lot and was lobbying for sending the money to missions. So probably needless to say, I lost that battle, <laughs> but it was a very a grounding experience. And you mentioned being a home builder, and I know you own your own business. Tell us a little bit about your career and what got you into that industry? Yeah. Yeah. So just to finish a little bit on the spiritual background. So accepted Christ when I was nine, went through a lot, as I just described in kind of our early years of growing up and in teenage years, and then started a Bible study actually out of our home about the time my wife and I got married and stayed with the same Bible study for about 30 years And that, you know, a small group that really, really helped develop us. And I feel like connected through a lot of challenges, a lot of, you know, highs and lows that we experienced as a couple and as a family on our spiritual journey through the years and really appreciated learning through that. And God taught me a lot through, you know, that small group. So we actually, I actually bought the farm when I was 20 years old before I knew what that meant and borrowed 
about $550,000. Our payments were $43.66 a month. That's not $43, $4,366 a month. <laughs> In 1978, that was a lot of payment and it took a lot of cows. Turns out 300 bovines are very needy. And my wife and I decided about 10 years later to sell the cows. It's a whole process that we went through determining what we really wanted to do was stay on the dairy farm without the dairy. That was kind of our goal. But through a whole series of things, which I'm not going to take the time to get into, we were not able to do that. And we had prayed a lot, sought the counsel of many, as Proverbs talks about, but felt like God did not answer our prayer. And we needed to sell the farm, basically had worked. <laughs> I felt like we had worked the, you know, the previous 15 years early in the morning till late at night, had put a, a lot of our blood, sweat, and tears into that farm and ended up walking away with basically zero dollars to put into our next venture, which was home building. We started a home building company in 1992 and ended up starting Hope International in 1997. And I'll come back to a little bit of that in a second, but just to finish the kind of the end of the prayer was about 15 years later after that prayer, after Hope was really starting to take off, Hope International was doing well, Peter Greer had been hired as our president. I remember thinking back to that prayer and thinking, if God would have answered that prayer, I probably still would have been on the crop farm, never would have got into home building, probably wouldn't have got into starting Hope International. And he answered a prayer in a much different way than what we had sought. It was a good reminder to me that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers in the way we want them to be answered, but it's truly the best for us, best for him, best for others, and best for the kingdom. So yeah, we started a home building company in 1992 after selling real estate for a while, basically zero dollars, started pre-selling homes, and we built 12 homes our first year and have grown that company to, we built about 500 homes a year now, South Central PA and Northern Maryland have been honored with the America's Best Builder Award three times and are excited about the future. Yeah, I know I've seen Keystone signs locally around here, but I'd love to hear about those early years. You have a fairly new business, and for most people, I'd say that's a pretty full plate already. What was the impetus to start a ministry alongside that? Yeah, so in the mid-90s, our church started a Ukraine committee, which I got elected to help on, and our church, Calvary Monument Bible Church, out of Paradise, Pennsylvania. If you're going to start a church, you should start it in Paradise. That's what I would recommend. <laughs> That's the address of the church. And we had a sister church relationship with a church in Zaporozhye, Ukraine, which is where the nuclear plant is that you've seen in the news a lot since the invasion. God was tugging at our hearts to help that church in some way. And we started by sending containers, food and medical supplies. And it turned out we were toxic charity addicts. Robert Lupton talks in his book about the five steps of toxic charity, that first gift that we in the West think about when we think of philanthropy, we think about giving people stuff is that first gift. There's appreciation, right? The donor, the, you know, the giver is checks their box, they're happy, the recipient's happy. The second gift, there's anticipation. So it goes appreciation, anticipation. The next gift, there's some expectation. The next gift, there's some entitlement. And then the fifth gift or the fifth year, there's just complete dependency. So our pastor, fortunately, and I'm so thankful for this, admonished us and encouraged us. to. He said, you're helping is hurting us. Is there some way you can help us help ourselves? And it sent us on a journey, which ultimately ended up being Hope International. We found Christ-centered microfinance working in other parts of the world. And somebody told us that it could not be done in Ukraine. And that's all we needed to hear. So we <laughs> set out on a journey to figure out how to make it work. I'm kind of curious about that process. Those first couple of years that 
you're kind of figuring things out on the fly and starting to piece some of these things together. What did things look like then as far as people you had involved and things you were learning and how it was the organization was starting to take shape? Yeah, they don't have time for all the stories, but in those early years before Peter Greer, we just absolutely had no idea. It wasn't that we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't even know that we didn't know what we didn't know. It was just, it was like as bad as we could get. We had our executive director, one of his first trips was meeting with some local staff. We did have the idea we'd really need to, after the whole experience with the containers, we really need to connect with local leaders. So we had our executive director was meeting with some folks there and something got mixed up with the interpreters. He was in with the translators. He was in a home and he thought he was communicating okay, but nobody could really speak each other's language. <laughs> so finally, he was there 48 hours and when the interpreter showed up. And the first thing through the interpreter that the host of our executive director said was, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> so, <laughs> so so there was, there was a complete lack of... But yeah, so... As we started to grow, we started giving out small loans. And one of the first things that helped Hope International really take off in Ukraine was we were fortunate enough to be a guest on a radio broadcast. You know, it was pre-podcast, but a local radio station hosted us and they interviewed a couple of the Ukrainian loan recipients who had received loans and we treated them well. It was not like a you know, just a pure business transaction. We truly wanted to look for ways to help folks spiritually and physically. And Ukraine had been going through just serious, serious economic problems. They were going through a depression that was six times worse than the depression in 1930 in the U.S. And there was just a lot of needs. But after that radio broadcast, we had just applicants lined up around the block. And I remember... Paul Marty, our executive director at the time, calling me and saying, Jeff, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I think this is going to work. We have so many applicants here. We have folks that are hungry for spiritual things, hungry for figuring out ways to sustainably improve their lives. They're not looking for handouts. They're looking for a way to receive capital, training, just really practical ways to help them restore dignity in their lives. And he said, the bad news is you need to send more cash because we are out of cash. All the loans are, we have a lot of more opportunity. So again, it sent us on a growth journey at that time. It was very, very small. It was definitely an inflection point that sent us on a journey of growth. So Jeff, it sounds like you were wearing at least a handful of pretty large hats. And I'm just finding it hard to imagine the conflict that you experienced at times managing your time well and resources. Did you find that stepping into this ministry opportunity enhanced Keystone or was there tension there? How did you resolve that? That's a great question. I would say the thing that I was most concerned about at the time was making sure that there was no slippage in my real priority, which was being a father to my children and a husband to my wife. And one of the ways, I'll come back to Keystone in a second, but one of the ways that we tried to do that was we involved the kids in everything. If I was going to Ukraine, I was taking at least one of them with me. If we were going to another, if we were going to Bogota, Colombia, you know, to check out a program, my son went with me. If we were going to Dominican Republic or Rwanda, wherever we were going, or if we were just going to a meeting here locally. So we tried to involve them as early as possible. And that was, I can't say that I came up with some kind of design that this would be ultimately great for our family, but God knew. And it really was. It was just a godsend. Our kids grew up just having an amazing Christian worldview and understanding what 90% of the world lives like just by default because they got to tag along from a very young age and be a part of something that was real. I think too many times kids in that age, so our kids would have been, you know, in that late 90s, our kids would have been like 7, 10, 13-ish, something like that, and then growing, you know, going from there. A lot of kids in that 
range, you know, their reality is Disney World and watching, you know, movies and going to, you know, great entertainment things that is great for keeping them content and happy. But I really think understanding, a truly understanding what some of the needs and challenges are around the world is an important way to develop kids. And that was a big part of, you know, as I say, completely took the wind out of their not fair speech, you know, when they were talking about <laughs> how many texting minutes they had or what the, what the color of their cell phone was or the latest sneakers. I firmly believe in having, you know, kids work hard, stay humble and understand what they can do for others, not just what everybody else can do for them. So that was the way we balanced the family life. As far as Keystone, I think there was some of the background. I know it sounds kind of strange, but some of the background of the challenges and the difficulties we worked through on the dairy farm were really beneficial. We learned a lot of business principles and a lot about survival. You know, and building this industry is very cyclical, lots of ups and downs. And it seems like from time to time, you're facing some kind of a crisis. And I was, I grew up with that. It was probably, you know, better than any MBA degree I could have had. So there was a lot of challenges and opportunities, but we had good people. We delegated well and continued to, to grow the business. But like I said, it was, it was very small in the beginning. You know, we built 12 buy levels our first year and our average price was 69.9 and that included the, the building lot. You know, now our average price is 769, you know, so, and that doesn't always include the building lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what you're talking about with the kids is really impactful and insightful. And I can't remember at all where I heard it, but I remember hearing that if you don't help your kids, especially in that age range, find a mission for their life, then they will find one themselves and are not always the best at actually finding that themselves. And that's where things can sometimes go off the rails. And by providing that for them, or at least offering that as really the greater Christian mission of all that God calls us into, and then letting them see that firsthand just helps fill that kind of searching process that right in that range, seven to 15, 16 kids are trying to figure out. Yeah, there's no question. At about the same time we had started, and not as many folks know about this ministry as Hope International, but at the same time we started Hope International, we started an organization called Tomorrow Clubs. That's tomorrowclub.org if you want to look it up. But we had, with our kids, we had done a summer camp just about every summer from that 1997 on through, you know, the next 10, 15 years, and they would develop very close relationships with the kids we worked with in Ukraine and other places around the world. And it's it was just a very natural way to understand how God works across the globe and that it's not all about us. Yeah, exactly. So I want to take a step back. I know you have a deep heart for generosity, and that has been evident in so many aspects of your life. Are there any kind of specific points or experiences you had that where God really got a hold of your attention specifically with regards to finances and managing money and how that looks in, in a biblical perspective? Yeah. So I think from a young age, like you said, my upbringing was a little dysfunctional, but my family was always very generous with their time, their resources, just the way my parents lived. I can remember my dad being extremely frugal. He would, you know, spend an afternoon fixing a part that would cost $5 to go buy <laughs> on the dairy farm. But then he would drop a check for $500 in the offering plate the next morning for missions. And I watched that in both my parents growing up. And I remember being on the dairy farm myself, my wife and I having, you know, just barely able to meet those monthly payments I talked about. But you know, if we sold a tractor or had extra, any kind of extra cash, we would be looking for ways to support missions well before we could afford it. 
And I really believe that's where God works in our hearts is in the early years and when we don't really have much to give or can't afford to give what we do have. (laughs) If God can get a hold of our hearts at those times, I think that's what sets the stage for a really a life of generosity and kind of the mindset. I mean, I've never really looked at any of the possessions we've had from that dairy farm to our building business to, you know, the home we live in as ours. I definitely have always truly looked at it as we're a steward. We're a manager of God's resource. And I think that was something that I was taught from an early age. And I feel like we, I know we tried to instill that in our kids. And I I feel like we've done a, a fairly good job of helping them understand that. I think generosity and the way that you've demonstrated it is about so much more than financial stewardship as well, because if you had focused 100% of your working time toward building the business, toward profitability, it may look different than it does today, but I'd imagine you don't have any regrets about being a founding partner with Hope International and all that's come from that ministry. And although Keelan and I are familiar with Hope International, I imagine someone might be listening to this and wondering exactly what there is to it. Could you just explain kind of how it developed since its founding and what Hope International is involved in today? Yeah. Yeah, my pleasure. I love talking about Hope. We started, uh, again, didn't know what we didn't know. Today, Hope International has given out over $1.5 billion in tiny loans. We're currently in 24 countries around the world. We have developed two major programs. We have a savings program and a microfinance lending program, both of which incorporate are very spiritually integrated. So we work with what's called the five W's, the welcome, worship, word, work, and wrap up in every one of our small group meetings. You know, I talked earlier about how small group impacted my life in a dramatic way. That's the very core of Hope International works in small groups around the world in all of the clients that we work with. But typical example, it's easy for folks, listeners to understand is we have a lady in Burundi named Anastasia. My daughter Leah and I had the chance to meet a few years ago, was not able, she wasn't going to be able to send her two young daughters to school. School is very expensive in Burundi. She, Her and her husband's income was very meager But she had an idea. She had this idea of starting a business, leasing out things to couples getting married, like a wedding venue business. Now, I don't know about you or the listeners, but I didn't think that was that great of an idea. I was (laughs) from Lancaster. I'm thinking Burundi, third poorest country, according to the World Bank in the world. Shouldn't you start a business, you know, like something with food or shelter, clothing? But her loan officer knew That was a good idea. All of our loan officers are indigenous to the countries we work in. Her loan officer said, yes, that's a good idea. We're going to approve a $20 loan for 20 chairs. She wanted to borrow $20, so four cups of Starbucks for 20 chairs. They were a dollar a piece, just like your plastic lawn chairs. And she started, she did really well. And fast forward today, she has 200 chairs, 200 play settings, 200 baskets, and three wedding dresses, small, medium, and large, that she leases out to couples getting married. And she is flourishing. She is doing so well. Her daughters are doing well in school. And her dream at this point is that those two little girls will go to the university someday in the university there, Bujumbura, Burundi. So that's an example. That's one out of millions of families that we've worked with. But it's a way that we can also use the amazing power and potential of microfinance, a small loan changing a life to also deliver the gospel and to disciple families around the world. Tons of examples of how not only lives have been changed spiritually, but generosity has been developed. So that's on the microfinance side. On the savings side, so about half and half, we have a $35 million budget this year, about half of our expenses, our half of our program initiative will go towards microfinance, which I just described. And the other half will go towards 
are saving services. So the way that looks like an example of that is Jane, Zimbabwe. Our family had a chance to meet her as well a few years ago, started by cleaning houses and working in gardens. She was making about 15 cents a week. Now, if you just let that sink in a second, most people would say, that's not somebody you want to work with to start saving. But Jane was able to start saving very small amounts. After about 18 months, she had saved up $20. And then with the help of the rest of the group, it's like a little savings and loan organization. They have about 10 other group members, 10 in a group. The name of the group was called the Famous Club, which I love the names of these groups. So they gave her a loan for $60. So she put that with her $20 of savings and bought 100 peeps, 100 little chicks. Started a chicken business, which she had learned about over those 18 months from the other group members. Became very successful in just turn it over. She was growing the chickens for broilers. She would raise a group, sell them, start another group, sell them. And by the time we had got there, we were there in January to visit her. She had become so successful that she decided to give out 13 bars of soap to 13 widows in the village of Epworth outside of the capital city of Harare there in Zimbabwe, which is a very poor area. And it just was, it brought tears to my eyes to hear her story and think about these Soap is a very, very much a luxury item in this village. And so Jane had gone from basic survival to success in the chicken business to now true significance through her generosity in, in changing the lives of these women who she was able to give this soap to. So I, I thought that was, so those are the two big things that Hope is involved in. Peter Greer started in 2004. So we started the organization in 1997. Peter Greer, fortunately, somehow, we were able to, on his way from Harvard to a job at the World Bank, we were able to intercept him and convince him that Lancaster, Pennsylvania was the place to be. And he's been there 18 years now, and we are just loving it. He has continued to develop, lead. He's written or co-authored, I think, 14 books now, including Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals. Just it's exciting to watch what God has done and to see how many lives have been impacted through the work of Hope International. Jeff, that story about Jane, there's so many things to point out. It's just such a wonderful example because she did the work of savings. She was involved in community. She developed a skill set. She took the initiative, learned a new skill, started a business. And kind of the culminating moment that you talked about was this outpouring of generosity. She spent years getting to the point where she was just kind of stable and able to support her family and her business. And yet she's going to the nearby city and lavishing blessings upon people in need. And just is such a beautiful vision of generosity that we see in scripture and I'm thinking about in America, why don't we hear more of those stories? We are blessed with an incredible amount of wealth and resources and time and luxuries. And yet it can be difficult to part with even a small fraction of it at times. Do you think there's a real difference in the way that culturally generosity is viewed? Absolutely. And I think it starts with the entitlement piece. I think there's too much of a safety net and with all good intentions, right? We don't want to see anyone suffer. And we personally and our company has been very involved in supporting ministries that help people in need. And partly, I believe, because of that safety net, there's not that true, you know, Jane had to go through the valley and really work hard and come through that survival and the success. And I really believe that through those five W meetings, the welcome, worship, word, work, and wrap up, and just understanding and flourishing through that and learning and her heart being molded, I think really God really worked through that whole process. It didn't just like happen overnight. It wasn't a quick fix like we in this country, I believe, too many times 
one. And I think that heart of generosity was developed over a period of years. I think the other thing that is relevant for this conversation is how relative poverty is. There was a study done, and Peter talks about it in his book, Created to Flourish, between a unemployed truck driver in Appalachia, Kentucky, and a neurosurgeon in Kinshasa, Congo, and the standard of living that they had. And they measured 25 different things, including, you know, do you have a health insurance? Do you have air conditioning? Do you have running water? You know, what's the level of, you know, what's your vehicle look like? What's your, all kinds of different things that we would think sometimes we take for granted. And in every single case, every single bullet point of those 25, the unemployed Appalachian truck driver had a higher standard of living than the neurosurgeon in Kinshasa, Congo. And I think sometimes we think if we don't have the latest of whatever it is, there's something wrong. And we just assume that we deserve better. I think sometimes it's our environment makes it tough to get out of that. Yeah. So I think this, you're right. So Jane was, I think, a shining example of going through that process, but it was hard. It was not easy. And it's sometimes we want to skip that part. Just like in my example of I wanted to pray and say, I want to have the dairy farm without the dairy. Let's have it happen right now. God had a different answer for that prayer, but it took 15 years. And by the way, I still haven't learned that lesson. I still would like the answers to my prayers in like 15 minutes or less (laughs) if possible. (laughs) You mentioned earlier about the impact of your kids being in contact with all these different people from around the country and just seeing, basically being exposed to exactly what you're talking about, seeing that it is not what we just see in front of us on a day-to-day basis. And I think a lot of what you're talking about, there's this significant disconnect between us and the first world in the U.S. and really the majority of the rest of the world. So I have kind of a two-part question related to that. One, for people listening right now, who want to combat that in their own hearts, how can we try to become better exposed to really what the rest of the world looks like? And then as a follow-up to that, how can we as a church try to help all of those around us to have better exposure to really try to combat this kind of frame of mind that you're talking about? Yeah. I don't have any quick fixes for that as it relates to the last discussion. However, a couple things I would recommend off the top of my head would be get on a trip to at least visit and, you know, get outside the tourist track, get inside people's homes, get to know them, get to understand them and really develop a personal relationship. There's a couple other Things again, Peter wrote a, Peter Greer wrote a curriculum on just kind of walking the journey with some of our clients around the world. And he'll take, you know, so for example, you might take a week and just eat rice and beans. Like that's all you eat the whole week. You might take a week where the only water you drink or water you use for a shower, you have to walk a mile for. So there's just, you know, which is a very common reality in some parts of the world. There's other examples in, and I forget exactly some of the others, but they're along that line, just kind of going on that journey. A couple other quick things I would say is any simulation doesn't do it complete justice, but it gets you a little closer. So Hope International has a savings simulation. Now, if you reach out to us, hopeinternational.org, and host the saving simulation. It basically gives you the identity of one of our savings group members as a part of an hour long. You can do it over lunch at your company or at your church or your small group. And you just kind of go through a savings group meeting. You take on the identity of one of the group members, and it really helps you understand some of the things that they're actually trying to decide and think about in in the reality of their lives. So those are a couple things that I would suggest. Diving into your story a little deeper, you mentioned that you always viewed these ventures or businesses or really all things that you have as things that you're stewarding and they don't ultimately belong to you. How has that impacted your decision to transfer ownership of 
Keystone. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I've always looked at our resources as God's resources and we're managers. And when we started looking at several key life kind of changing decisions, including our next season of estate planning, the next season of who leads Keystone as we become, you know, now a 300, $400 million company, it's grown beyond the, you know, the mom and pop, we're just going to do this part-time thing. <laughs> What's the next step in this journey? So we really started researching a lot of different avenues. I was referred to actually by my daughter, a couple videos of Alan Barnhart from Barnhart Crane. If you guys have, if any of our listeners have not met or heard Alan speak, I would really encourage you to do so. And he's just a, he's been a great mentor for me over the last few years. The first time I watched this video, I thought, this guy's crazy. That seems really, <laughs> really bizarre. But as I thought about it, there was really a lot of things that were going through my mind and God was doing in our life at that time. My wife, Sue, had been diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer and had been given a 4% chance of surviving two years. And now she's cancer-free today after seven rounds of chemo and stomach removal. And that was over five years ago. She's flourishing. She's doing really well. But God really worked through that whole experience in really reminding our whole family that life is, we're not promised tomorrow. And to really think in terms of, it really helped recrystallize the thinking of, of our own mortality and what life looks like in eternity. In the order of eternity, what does it really matter who owns Keystone? Just like, if you think about it, I think sometimes, you know, we take ourselves way too seriously. And sometimes I think we really need to, like, take our work seriously and our mission and our ministry seriously, but take ourselves less seriously. So going through that process, one of the first things I did was bring my son in and, you know, just talk through it with him and say, Ben, what do you think? And of course, like I said, Ben had been brought up through this very different style of, you know, kind of in the growing years. And at a very young age, he also was taught that manual labor was not the president of Mexico. Like that's a real thing. You know, we did straw mulching on the weekends and he had, you know, set him up in a mowing business, lots of sweat and toil and earned his way through college. And that being said, there's still, I really feel like God worked in his heart all the way through those years. And he's 33 now. So we did this transfer just a couple years ago. So yeah, he would have been around 30 at the time, but I remember him coming right back. And I said, go home, pray about it, talk to your wife about it. But I remember him coming back and saying, you know, the whole wealth building thing is not what we're about. We really do believe that building equity for charity, building equity for things like Hope International and other very well-deserved ministries around the world is, you know, true purpose and can, is very life-giving. And so we had a great discussion through that. Of course, I'm, you know, just really condensing months of evaluation and thought and prayer. That's kind of what went into that. And it just seemed like a natural next step as we thought about it big picture. It just, for the way we viewed the world, the way we viewed our business, we held it very lightly and it just seemed like a very natural next step. I mean, that is an incredible act and process to go through spiritually and mentally after having built something like that for so many years. I'm wondering on a practical level, if you can break down kind of the nuts and bolts of what something like that looks like. I mean, we've heard stories like Alan Barnhart's story and giving away a enormous business like that. And you know, it seems like a complex process. So maybe you can just give us kind of a feel for some of the considerations that go into something like that. Yeah. So one of the things that we realized early on was that in Pennsylvania, if you give more than 90% of a real estate business, you need to pay transfer tax on it. 
that would have been a huge number. And I have a little bit of that frugalness in me that my dad, you know, working in the afternoon to save the $5. I was very focused on that piece. We did at that point determine, and we may do more later, but we transferred 89% of the stock in the company to the National Christian Foundation Charitable Trust. So the other 11%, you know, we have, Ben has some ownership, I have some ownership, and we have, you know, plans for how we'll deal with that over the coming years. That being said, one of the first steps was to meet with all of our banks and say, here's what we're thinking about doing. And it was interesting, after they got up off the floor, you know, in shock, (laughs) (laughs) they, they said, you know, actually, this is good for us because you're actually going to pay less tax. We still have the same equity. We think you're a little crazy, but that's okay (laughs) because we're protected. So it didn't really affect them that much. We put a PowerPoint together for our company and they, I believe we have about 160 employees. I believe most of them really appreciate that they are working for a profit with a purpose instead of you know, the owner's going to be able to buy a, you know, a jet or a ski lodge or a yacht. I believe it does make a little bit of difference there that they come to work thinking, okay, I'm going to make a difference in Anastasia's life, or I'm going to make a difference in Jane's life, or I'm going to make a difference in the life of a family in Haiti who's struggling to survive just by doing what I do every day, whether it's drafting a home, selling a home, designing a home, building a home, and, you know, taking care of clients, you know, we talk about all the time, we're building dream homes and investing in dreams of the families we serve around the world. And that I think is a real practical kind of byproduct of what we've been able to do. At the end of the day, there's probably not enough practical things like that advantages that would outweigh if somebody's like thinking, no, no, I want to hold this for me. And I do want to buy the yacht and I do want to jet and So I think it starts in the heart, but there's some other things that for me, probably the most valuable thing for me was it didn't change anything. I went to work the next day, you know, put my pants on one leg at a time, just, you know, went to work the exact same way I did the day before, but it was very clarifying for me. And I didn't, I probably didn't expect this as much you know, when we decided to move forward, it was very clarifying for me. I've always known that it was God's. And yet, you know, as Alan likes to say, the IRS kept sending us tax bills like it belonged to me, you know. (laughs) But it was very clarifying to actually, you know, paper the truth, really put in writing, clarify and say, okay, we are making this. It's one thing to say it's, this is all God's, I'm the manager. It's another thing to say, okay, we're giving it away. We're still going to work just as hard to run it. As a matter of fact, we're even probably going to be more passionate about seeing it be successful because it's for folks that we know need it you know, a whole lot more than we do. So those are a couple just practical things. So Jeff, the 89% that was transferred to the NCF Charitable Trust, what happens to all the profits that flow that direction? Great question. And I would encourage you to think about it as a tree, okay? The tree is the company, and the tree is 89% owned by the National Christian Foundation Charitable Trust. As the tree develops fruit, the fruit can be given away. It can be used to pay for, you know, pay employees, all the things you would normally. But as the tree grows, as the equity, I would call the tree, the trunk of the tree, the main parts of the tree grows, that's the equity in the company that belongs to the National Christian Foundation Charitable Trust. So the charity continues to grow. One of the things we evaluated early on was we said, what does it look like in 20 years? What's the, because you can kind of see the growth, you can kind of see. So we did an evaluation of if we increase giving and we had the exact same amount of profits, exact same amount of, you know, all the and it kind of averages out over 20 years. At the end of the day, the company, the equity, now it's owned by 89% NCF, would be worth double what it would have been if it would had not been given away. And that's simply because of the tax savings being rolled back into the company. 
And it's, I feel like it's such a great example of when we have something that God has given us and we're holding it in our hands, if we hold on to it too tightly, it can't grow. If we hold it loosely, it can grow. And I feel like that's a great example. But to answer your question, Cody, just a little bit further. So as the prophets go back into the company, those profits can be used to continue to grow the company. We're in a very capital intensive business. You know, if you've seen some of our homes in Maryland, you know that those building lots are three, $400,000 just to buy the building lot. And so when we sell, we sell at a community, we need to write a check for millions of dollars for the next one. So those dollars as the profits are made, they go back into the company and then we still make decisions on what can be given to charity out of that. But the whole thing is 89% a charity itself as it continues to grow. And of course, as the business grows, the revenue grows, and then there's even more available to give out on a cash basis. So Jeff, you have a lot going on and a lot of stuff to be excited about. As you look towards the next five or 10 years, what do you see coming on the horizon and what are you most excited about? Yeah, so one of the things that I'm most excited about and my heart is burdened the most about is the recent invasion of Ukraine and the way that the families that we've gotten to know over the last 25 years have been impacted both right there in Zaporozhye where we started all the way down to Mariupol and even in Western Ukraine. I had a chance to visit some of our friends in Ukraine in June in Western Ukraine and they are exhausted. They're exhausted, you know, physically, spiritually, psychologically, mentally, every possible way. And, and they're disillusioned in a lot of ways. But that being said, God is working. God is bringing so many families to himself. So please, if you're a listener today and you have a minute to stop and pray, please pray for our friends in Ukraine who have the opportunity to share the gospel in a country that still is really devoid of a majority of evangelical Christian presence. There's a huge need for God to work there, and he's using this crisis. God doesn't waste a crisis. So each week, our loan officers pray with our clients all over the country by phone, wherever they can be reached. That's one of the burdens. I will share one recent example that I heard of one of our clients. His name's Yuri in Western Ukraine. He's a wheat farmer. We just started re- lending in the west part of Ukraine. There's a war going on in the east still, and it's just extremely tough. But we are lending again in the west, and Yuri received a loan to plant his wheat back in the spring. And he was telling us, my wheat is way too expensive. The fertilizer's too expensive. The fuel's too expensive. The pesticide, herbicide, you know, when I'm combining the fields, I don't know if I'm going to hit a landmine and blow the whole combine and me. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to sell my wheat and get it out of the harbor. But he said, I'm going to use the gift that God has given me and put in my hands. I know how to grow wheat. His son's a police officer and was conscripted into the Ukrainian army. So every moment he's praying for him or thinking about, you know, what's going to happen to my son. But he said this. I love this quote. He said, hope dies last. And I think about that in terms of his eternal hope, the hope that his son will survive the battle, the hope that what he's done, what he's doing with growing wheat will somehow influence and impact his countrymen and make a difference in their lives. But that's one way that we can be praying for the our friends in Ukraine, supporting them, Giving a small loan like that helps Yuri be sustainable in so many ways and influence the world. So there's a lot of things that I see as far as my heart being burdened for there in Ukraine. As far as the next, what I see as far as opportunities and challenges in the future, I see the opportunity for growth in the lives of our clients in a way that is really healthy in helping them grow spiritually, personally, socially, and materially, and do it in a way that restores dignity in their lives instead of that toxic 
charity. So that's what really kind of cranks my tractor. So, Jeff, as we wrap up this episode, we just want to take some time for what we call our manager's minute. And this is a chance for us to have our guest share a practical tip or idea for the listeners on how they can step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. Do you have any suggestions to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I would say if you're listening, if you're running on that treadmill or just walking the dog or whatever you're doing, and my practical tip I would say is focus on what God has put in your hands. That's different for each one of us. I know I read a book a few years ago called Discovering Your Genius. And one of the best examples I can think of things for me not to focus on when I was coaching my youngest daughter's junior high girls basketball team, I could not make a left-handed layup to save my life. It always looked, I would leave the office like some crazy important meeting and go coach these girls. And they would be like, you're the coach, you know, (laughs) but I was a good conditioning coach. You know, I would just like make them run until somebody threw up, (laughs) but making a left-handed layup was not one of my genius. But I would say each of you know what your genius, you know what God gifted you with, you know what God put in your hands. And it could be something small, it could be something big. It doesn't matter. I would just really focus on what God put in your hands and hold that openly, hold that very loosely and allow God to use that. Focus on that genius because each of us have a gift that God has given us. And I would just think about that, pray about it, offer it up as an offering, and it will have high impact in so many ways. And that will bless you. It'll bless others. And God will be glorified through it. Amen to that. Well, Jeff, this has been a fantastic conversation. It is so encouraging to just see how God has worked through all these different aspects of your life and how he has drawn you to so many other people who are living incredible lives all around the world. So thank you for taking the time to share a little bit about that story with us. Thank you, Keelan. Thank you, Cody. It's been fun. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 64. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. Mm